Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 44 for February 25th, 2007. And I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. Today's feature topic is virtual server security, specifically virtual server implementations using hypervisor technology. The virtual server security segment is taken from my weekly contributions to techrepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. But first, let's look at some of the security-related happenings reported last week. Toshiba claimed this week that they are very close to commercializing key exchange that relies on quantum mechanics for protection. In an article in Network World, Martin Williams reports that Toshiba successfully transmitted a key over a 25-kilometer fiber connection. The process involves transmitting one bit per photon, and a photon, uh, if you remember your physics, behaves like a particle or a wave of light energy. In accordance with the principles of quantum physics, if an attacker attempts to intercept the photon stream, the physical status of the photons is changed. This allows detection of data stream tampering. Probably the biggest barrier to commercialization is the requirement to transmit the key carrying photons over a point-to-point fiber link. The integrity of the photon stream is affected by routers and switches. There is a technology postulate that states that as technology grows in popularity, as it's found in larger number of homes and organizations, it also becomes an increasingly popular target for criminals. Voice over IP is no exception. This week, Cisco announced that access control vulnerabilities exist in several of its IP phones. In a CNET article, Marguerite Reardon describes these vulnerabilities and the potential risk associated with them. The article is entitled Security Flaws Found in Cisco IP Phones. Although the risks don't necessarily include the compromise of sensitive data, they can cause intermittent service interruptions. Since voice and data travel over the same or similar and parallel paths, most of the controls necessary to secure VoIP and data networks are the same. There are some differences, however. If you go up to my show notes at ittoolbox.com, um, the link can be found at uh, adventuresandsecurity.com at the podcast page. I provide two links, one called Securing Voice Over IP, and the other one, Security Considerations for Voice Over IP Systems, which is a NIST special publication. Both of these uh, sources provide more detailed information about how to secure, secure IP voice transmissions. And deploying IP phone systems goes far beyond the normal buy and plug in the handset and talk process associated with standard phones. Be sure you understand how to securely configure any solution you select. Better yet, be sure you know what questions to ask during the selection process. In Dark Reading this week at darkreading.com, Tim Wilson writes about the benefits of and opportunities related to security outsourcing in an article entitled Security Outsourcing Heats Up. Many organizations are hesitant to outsource security functions. However, it's time for managers to start asking the tough questions. For example, does it make better business sense to have internal security resources, monitor firewalls and intrusion detection devices, or to ensure compliance? 
Ensuring compliance is a full-time job consisting of policy development, working with IS and business teams to create supporting standards and guidelines, and aggressively training users and vendors on acceptable behavior. In my opinion, it is in this area that dollars dedicated to internal security resources are best spent. Let someone else parse through all that log data. The next item really isn't a news item, but I'd like to share with you um, a paper I found on the techniques for memory debugging. Buffer overflows are one of the biggest security problems faced by both vendors and internal developers. The use of low-level languages like C and C++ is just an overflow exploit waiting to happen. There are several causes of overflow vulnerabilities, but all are related to mistakes in managing memory. Unlike developers working with newer development environments, for example .NET and Java, C and C++ programmers must code for the right amount of variable memory. Failing to do so can result in exploits that crash servers, execute malicious code, or truncate results of mathematical calculations, resulting in loss of data integrity. IBM published a paper this month that steps through the process of ridding C and C++ applications of buffer overflow weaknesses. The paper, entitled Techniques for Memory Debugging, can be found at a link, again, in my show notes at the podcast page at adventuresinsecurity.com. And the final segment, or the final news item today, is really something that happened to me and to uh, the organization I work for as a result of following Microsoft's instructions on how to uh, apply their daylight savings time change fix and patches. As most IT professionals in the U.S. know, system patches are necessary this year to adjust when daylight savings time, or DST, begins and ends. Adjusting calendars and systems like Exchange can be difficult if done manually. However, Microsoft provided what we believe to be a useful tool to automate this process. If only they had given our patch management team all the information required to be successful. In an effort to get the updates out of the way, our patch management engineers applied the necessary Exchange and Outlook patches last weekend. This was step one. Without applying these patches, new calendar entries would not have properly reflected the change to DST on the start date of March 11th. All went well until the calendar fix program was executed. The fix program was supposed to move all calendar entries during the weeks between March 11th and April 2nd, the day the system expects the change to occur, forward one hour. Looking at the instructions for this process, our engineers found no mention of a very important required configuration change. The calendar must be configured to allow conflicting calendar entries for conference room resources. The important piece of information was also omitted during two telephone conversations with Microsoft support. We like to be safe. We also disallow conflicting conference room reservations, otherwise meetings can get a little crowded. Because the fix application was run without making this change, no appointments for which conference rooms were reserved were adjusted. This affects only appointments falling within the three weeks impacted by the time change. Well, sort of. Recurring meetings falling into the autumn time change to standard time on October 29th through the old date of November 4th are also off by an hour. And there's no way to fix it except for all users, about 15,000 in our case, to manually fix the problem. You see, once you run the fix program, all calendar entries are marked as fixed. There's no way to rerun the fix after making the necessary adjustments. Microsoft was a little help. 
They apologized and committed to either fix the problem or document the fix issue for organizations not yet updated. I would definitely recommend that before you run the fix program that you take a look at your exchange environment and make sure that all the little configuration changes that need to be made are made and make sure that this one very important configuration change that is allowing the the concurrent or conflicting scheduling of meetings is turned on so that you don't have meeting room chaos come the time change on March 11th. Well, that's it for this week's news. Let's move on to the feature topic, which is secure hypervisor-based virtual server environments. As the cost of hardware continues to decline and virtualization technology improves, organizations are looking more closely at server virtualization. Most of the techniques used to secure non-virtualized servers apply to virtualized systems. But there are some differences. In this episode, I step through how hypervisor-based virtualization works, dispel some myths about virtual server security, and provide recommendations for ensuring the same level of trust for virtual environments as that which exists for traditional server implementations. Before we go any further, I'd just like to let everyone know that this segment of the podcast is based on an article at techrepublic.com entitled also Secure Hypervisor-Based Virtual Server Environments. So what is virtualization? Server virtualization technology creates two or more virtual machines out of one physical hardware platform. It also manages how the VMs share resources. Physical system resources are shared and are accessed through virtualized representations of them. There are two basic types of virtualization. In the first type, a standard operating system, like Windows, runs on top of the hardware layer and hosts one or more guest OS instances. In other words, the standard operating system host environment actually controls virtualization. These guest instances are virtual machines or VMs. In the second type, a program known as a hypervisor abstracts the hardware from the operating system and manages how the VMs communicate with each other and with physical or virtual resources. I focus on hypervisor technology in this episode. So how does virtualization work? Well, there are various server virtualization products on the market today. As an example environment, I chose Zen, spelled X-E-N. Zen is Novell's virtualization solution for SUSE Linux. In addition, Microsoft has recently committed to ensuring Zen compatibility in its Windows OSs. It's a good representation of how hypervisor-based virtualization functions. Other hypervisor-based products include Intel with vPro, Microsoft, expected after the Longhorn release, and VMware ESX. All examples and descriptions in this episode are based on research conducted by IBM and documented in a paper entitled Building a Mac-Based Security Architecture for the Zen Open Source Hypervisor. A link to this paper can be found in the show notes. Also in the show notes, there is a figure that depicts the layers of the Zen environment. It consists of three layers, starting with the physical layer or the real machine layer. On top of that is the Zen hypervisor layer. And on top of that are the virtual machines. The Zen hypervisor is a small application that runs on top of the physical machine hardware layer. 
It implements and manages the virtual CPU, known as vCPU, virtual memory, known as vMemory, event channels, and memory shared by the resident VMs. It also controls I.O. and memory access to devices. In Zen, VMs are called domains. As we move through the rest of the podcast, I'm going to be referring to them as DOM0 and DOMU. DOM0 is the first VM created. It's used to manage the other domains known as user domains. Management through DOM0 consists of creating, destroying, migrating, saving, or restoring user domains, or DOMUs. An operating system running in a user domain is configured so that privileged operations are executed via calls to the hypervisor. This is because they are powerful enough to compromise the hypervisor. According to IBM, there are three characteristics associated with these calls. They offer access to virtual resources, for example, event channels and shared memory. They accelerate critical path operations, such as page table management. And they emulate privileged operations that are restricted to the hypervisor, but might also be necessary in guest operating systems. Within the Zen environment, each VM, as well as the hypervisor, has its own resources. Resources allocated to the hypervisor include the CPU, I.O. memory, and hypervisor memory. These are exclusive to the hypervisor. VMs are blocked from accessing them. VM resources include vMemory and vCPU. In addition, all VMs share event channels and shared memory. An event channel provides for synchronization of interactions between VMs. Shared memory, managed by a grant table in the hypervisor, allows a VM to allow another VM access to vMemory pages it owns. Shared hardware resources, such as a network adapter, are typically managed by device drivers inside each VM. It is possible to run device drivers from a special domain created for that purpose. However, a compromise of that domain can expose all domains to downtime or leave them open to attack. Examples of devices with drivers that are often placed into a device domain include SCSI disk or an Ethernet device. In a dark reading article, Paul Lin, Senior Director of Project Management at VMware, is quoted as saying, Virtualization is both an opportunity and a threat. Lin goes on to say, however, that because VMs are less complex than traditional operating systems, they should be easier to secure. So what are the risks organizations deploying virtual environments should address? Well, just for a moment, let's take a look at virtual machines in general. One concern can be described as uncontrolled or unmanaged proliferation of virtual servers. This could result in rogue VMs that are unprotected. The ease with which VMs can be created can increase the complexity of patch and change management. Another and possibly greater risk is the potential for free and open communication between VMs. Unless steps are taken to control how information is shared between processing environments, the isolation approach, which hinders one physical server from acting as a launching platform for malware or other types of attacks, breaks down. Safeguarding encryption keys might also be a challenge if sharing of vMemory between VMs is not controlled. Keys residing in memory could be compromised if another VM accesses the right, or wrong, memory page. Normal operation of VMs on the same server might not allow this to happen, but a compromised hypervisor, or VM, might break weak controls designed to prevent such mistakes. All of the security issues raised so far 
can be solved by the right policies and processes. The proliferation of VMs is a management issue that must be handled through training, monitoring, and compliance enforcement. Implementing communication and sharing policies in the virtualized environment itself is a little more challenging. One of the most critical assets to protect is the hypervisor itself. Compromise of the hypervisor exposes all VMs on a single physical server to attack. One method of protecting the hypervisor is through attestation at boot up. Using technology like TPM, the hypervisor can establish a trusted relationship with the host hardware that is maintained during server operation. This can also be extended to the VMs as well. Addressing inter-VM communication is the objective of S-Hype, IBM's proposed architecture for securing VMs in a hypervisor-based environment. Implementation of policies within the hypervisor allows administrators to determine which VM or groups of VMs are allowed to communicate and what resources they can share. Portions of the S-Hype specification are being included in Zen. For more information about using the TPM or Trusted Platform Module, or about S-Hype, see IBM's Virtual Trusted Platform Module document, or the document entitled S-Hype, Secure Hypervisor Approach to Trusted Virtualized Systems. Again, links to both of these are in the show notes. In closing, I'm providing a list of recommendations for securing hypervisor-based virtualized servers, taken from Gartner's Secure Hypervisor Hype, Myths, Realities and Recommendations by Neil McDonald. First, require your hypervisor provider to support hardware-based attestation of hypervisor integrity. The hypervisor should be able to extend its, extend its root of trust built during attestation to other critical partitions or domains. Immutable roots of trust in the BIOS or secure BIOS update mechanisms should be mandatory hypervisor selection criteria. Fully understand the level at which your hypervisor provider hosts drivers. Drivers are a weak link in any server security model. Ensure that the compromise of a single driver doesn't compromise the entire virtualized environment. Security policies that define the configuration of the hypervisor, access controls, LAN or disk-based sharing, VLANs, and so on should be protected against tampering. The ability to update policies should be tightly controlled requiring strong authentication and verifiable digital signatures for integrity and validity. Restrict the ability of administrators to load arbitrary software in security, management, and other critical domains. Plan for the single point of failure potentially caused by a service or parent domain. To protect against denial-of-service attacks, no single host OS partition should be able to consume 100% of any physical resource. By default, VMs should not share their resources with other hosted VMs unless explicitly configured to do so in compliance with the principle of least privilege. And finally, inter-virtual machine communication should only be enabled when configured through tightly controlled, explicit policy. Well, that's it for this week. I hope I was able to help you make your security challenges a little more manageable. Until next week... Be careful what you click.